0: You are listening to Rabbi Arya Woolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Thinking Talmudist Podcast. Welcome back to the Thinking Talmudist Podcast. It's so wonderful to be here. It's so wonderful to see everyone here. So, the Talmud that we studied last week, which ended on Tractate Avodah 4a on top, we talked about, we gave, two reasons why man is like fish number one is because a fish out of water will die so too a jew out of torah will die and then we gave another another reason because fish if they're exposed to the sunlight direct sun they will they will dry up and die and so too there's exa- a- a- another parable to that where we discussed last week about that. Now, we're going to give a third and I believe final comparison between the Jewish people and fish. Okay, Davar acher, an alternative interpretation. Ma just as the fish in the sea, Kol b-oleos any fish that is larger than his fellow devours him, it devours a smaller, a smaller fish adam. so too it is with human beings. Il moli marosh If it not for the fear of authorities, whoever, whatever, whichever person is greater, more powerful than his fellow, he would devour his fellow. And this is the concept that was expressed. In what we learned in the Mishnah, Rebbe Hanina, the deputy of the Kohanim, would say, you should pray for the welfare of the government, for if it not were, if it were not for the fear of government, Ish then men would devour his fellow. Okay, so what's going on here? Basically, in fish world, if you're a bigger fish, you swallow a smaller fish and you eat them up. Goodbye. That's the way it would be with human beings if there wasn't any laws, if there wasn't any government, if there wasn't a a, a legal system to prosecute those who commit crimes, and one of those crimes would be devouring your fellow man. Now, let me ask a question though: Do we perhaps do that in a legal way? Do we perhaps devour someone? Who doesn't act the way we think they should act? We talk about them negatively, right? Lashon hara. When we speak negatively about our fellow, what are we doing in essence? We're we're killing them. We're devouring them in public. If we if we share that information in public, and this could be devastating for people and our society as a whole. It's really not a very good thing. We have to be very very careful about that that we shouldn't fall into that terrible trap of being devourers of those who are smaller than us. Okay. The Gemara returns to discussing God's judgment of the idolaters. And if you remember the past two weeks, three weeks, even we talked about what's going to happen at the end of time when Mashiach comes and people will be held accountable for hating on the Jews. We have a responsibility to, we as the Jewish people, we have a responsibility to uphold the laws of the Torah. The nations of the world have an accountability to uphold the seven Noahide laws. So what happens if they don't follow the teachings of the seven Noahide laws? If they do not properly give opportunity for the Jewish people to fulfill their purpose in this world, And they're going to be held accountable for that. So now the Gemara says, Rabbi Hanina Bar Papa Rami. Rabbi Hanina Bar Papa contrasted the following verses. He says, We do not find the Almighty to be overbearing in His strength. And it says elsewhere, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. So that sounds like it's a contradiction. And it's also written, Your right hand, Hashem, is glorified with strength. So the latter two verses indicate that Hashem's power is openly manifest. While the first verse says that we do not observe God's full might. So what's going on in the Gemara? answers, is, It's not so difficult. Kan Bishasadin. In the former verse, we are dealing with a time of judgment. When God is judging Israel, but we're the last two verses where we say that God's strength is so strong, that's at a time of war when God is defending Israel against her enemies. In such an instance, he crushes the enemy nations with the full extent of his power. My dear friends, Let's bring back the miracles of the War of 48, the War of Independence, when we were attacked the day after the UN voted to allow Israel to become a state. What happened? We were attacked. I believe it was 13 nations. And Israel who had few soldiers, if any, and a an Air Force that was ill-equipped. The miracles that were visible. And then you have the Six-Day War in 1967. And then you have the the Yom Kippur War in 1973. And then you have the the War of the Golan Heights in 1982, Shloma Galil. And then you have the Antifadas, and you have everything that's been going on in Israel. And now, obviously, in 2023-24, we have the Simchas Torah War. We see miracles that are beyond comprehension. And we see that God is there with us, protecting us, defending us and creating miracles in front of our eyes, where you have, I remember we had a neighbor when I grew up in New York city, in Brooklyn, New York, where we had a neighbor who lived across the street from us for a few years. He was a former IDF, uh, IAF, the Israeli air force pilot. And he said to us that he would, during the six day war. He was shooting the machine gun of the, of the, uh, the jet, the fighter jet one way and suddenly a plane that he didn't even see on the other side and the other area out of his, you know, out of his direct, uh, aim blew up randomly out of no place. Like he would shoot there and that would blow up and you shoot there and that would blow up. It was, it was crazy what was going on. He said he saw open miracles and this was when he was telling us why he became religious and why he decided to start observing the Torah. He said, I was completely secular. He was a kibbutz uh, Jew who had really no interest and no exposure to Torah Judaism. And he wanted to just See, this is, this is, these are open miracles. I I have to see more into what this God is. Did in his, his investigation, found that there is a God, found that he gave a Torah as a manual for living and joined those who are under the wings of, uh, the, the wings of God's Shechina of God's presence and decided to become an observant Jew. Yes. Right. This, look, this is this is the reality of how our existence as a people doesn't make sense. Our existence as a people, forget our military, the IDF. It, it doesn't make sense as a people that we can survive all of the expulsions, all of the persecutions, all of the Holocausts that we've experienced. It doesn't make any sense. And yet we're standing tall, strong. You know, the greatest doctors in the world are Jewish doctors, right, doctor? Yeah? <laughs> right? The greatest scientists, the greatest inventions. They, it's unbelievable. Okay, a similar dialogue. Rabbi, Rabbi Chama, the son of Rabbi Chanino, contrasted the following verses. Chama I have no wrath. Uksiv, no that Hashem is vengeful and full of wrath. So, which one is it? So the Gemara answers, Lo kasha. It's not difficult. Over here, Kan be In the former verse, we are dealing with God's relationship with Israel towards His people. He does not display the wrath. be of But here, in the latter verse, we are dealing with His relationship with the idolaters, and God punishes them with His full wrath. An alternative explanation, Rav Hanino, bar Papa Amar. the son of Papa said, Chama enli. The verse is to be understood as follows. God says, although in theory I am full of wrath, at Israel I have no wrath. At Israel I have no wrath in my actual dealings with them. Shekvar nishbati, because I have already taken oath against becoming angry with them. Mi if only one would grant me that I had not taken such an oath, I would be towards them like wartime marauders who ravage a vineyard, leaving naught but weeds and thorns. Meaning Hashem, if he hadn't made this oath, perhaps he would punish us too. But Hashem made this promise. Hashem made this promise that he will not beat his people. Okay, so now if you remember previously, in previous episodes, we talked about the excuses that the nations of the world will give to why they didn't support the Jews and why they didn't help the Jews. And we we started this whole series back when the Hague was in session, dealing with the South African government's claim against the apartheid state of Israel, right? So obviously not, but but that that's what you do when you hate, when you're so filled with hate, um, and you don't know the facts, and you just go there, they're gonna be held accountable. They're gonna be held accountable. we said that, we say this in the UN as well. When they vote against Israel, they're voting against God. They're voting against God's people. And they will be held accountable at the end of time, where God will say, What did you do for the Jewish people? You voted against them. Okay, so now the Gemara says, <speaking in Hebrew> This reflects that which Rev Alexandri said. <speaking in Hebrew> the verse states in Zechariah, and it shall be on that day, I will seek to destroy the nations that come upon Jerusalem. <speaking in Hebrew> the verse states, I will seek. Which begs the question, from whom or what will God seek permission when he wishes to destroy the nations? Omra HaKadosh the Almighty says, I will seek merits in their chronicles which contain a history of their actions. If they possess merit, I will deliver them. If not, I will destroy them. So imagine every nation, by the way, I think the greatest and most kindest nation to the Jewish people in history was, is the United States of America. The United States of the, of America is the only country that hasn't persecuted the Jews, the only country Canada's part of Britain. We know that the Jews had a miserable time throughout the British Empire. Uh Russia, we were persecuted all th- all throughout Europe. In Egypt, obviously, we know. We're only two months away from Pesach. We know very, very well how Egypt dealt with us. All of the nations, you think of all of the nations and how the Jewish people were pursued and 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 murdered and expelled and burnt and slaughtered one after another, one country after another, the only country that has never had a system to hurt the Jews was the United States of America. Now that doesn't mean that there weren't specific instances like in the six day war where the American army betrayed Israel that happened. IE the USS Liberty wasn't randomly attacked by Israel during the six day war. It was espionage for the Egyptians, and America was caught, and Israel punished them and America apologized uh, it was it was it was not it was not very good for for America, but either way, Hashem will look at the end of time at all the nations, open up their chronicles and say, Okay, what did you do? What did you do to help the Jewish people? I recently shared that we found the recordings of my grandmother and grandfather's interview by the foundation. What's his name? The, uh, he does all the recordings of Holocaust survivors, Spielberg, Spielberg, the Spielberg foundation where they recorded and they, they had about a two hour interview with each of them, my grandfather and my mother's father and my, and my mother's mother, my maternal grandparents. And it's, it's unbelievable, you know, he asks them questions of like, where did you live? What type of home? Was it a house? Was it an apartment? Did you have, you know, uh, a, a, a paved street? Did you have, like, what, like, what, what, what was your life? And they start explaining and, and it's unbelievable the picture that's painted of a vibrant Jewish community. And what's left? What's left of that vibrant community? Where are all their houses? Where's all their property? Everything was taken away, gone. They're left with nothing, but the clothes on their back. If they had that taken to Auschwitz, taken to Birkenau, taken to, you name the, 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 the hell holes they were taken to. It's just unfathomable, unfathomable. <laughs> my grandfather was born in Berlin. It's my paternal grandfather born in Berlin. Where's his house? My paternal grandfather, grandmother lived in Lithuania. They had a beautiful home, many children. Where's that home? Home is still standing. It's not owned by us now. What happened to all of that? Plundered, taken away by our host nations. So then the come, it's going to come the end of time where God's going to say, Oh, Lithuania, let's open up your books. Well, doesn't look like you did too much good for the Jewish people. And let me, let's look at Czechoslovakia and let's look at Hungary and let's look at Poland and let's look at Germany and let's look at England and let's look at France and each one of the nations. What are they going to say for themselves? We built bridges for the Jewish people. Really? That's what you did. You didn't build bridges for the Jewish people. You built bridges like the Talmud says earlier to charge taxes you built the marketplaces for your own reasons. You didn't do it for the Jewish people. Okay. The above stated statement makes it clear that while God does not seek excuses to judge the nations harshly, he does judge them rig- rigorously following the letter of the law. The Gemara cites another remark which makes this same point. The hainu de and this is consistent with what Rava said. Ma'idichsiv, what is the meaning of that which is written, Ach, lo, lehen But let him not stretch out his hand in total fury. In their lot is pid, which means destruction. There is relief for them. What does the Almighty tell them? To the Jewish people. When I judge Israel, I do not judge them as I judge idolaters. They have acted iniquitously. And their sins and and for their sins I will make Jerusalem into ruins. That's referring right. Ella shel Rather, I punish them bit by bit, like the pecking of a hen. Meaning the Jewish people will get slow little small destruction after small destruction. That's the way we are punished. The Gemara offers a second explanation of the verse. And again, what are we punished for? We're punished for not properly observing God's ways. God says, he gives us the manual in his Torah, and he tells us this is the way in which you need to conduct your life, and we're not listening. We're not involved. And "And it's it's written. Yeah. The Gemara offers a second explanation of the verse, an alternative explanation. Even if Israel performs before me only a small number of mitzvahs, like the pecking of hens who nibble in the trash heap, I combine them to produce a large calculation, a large sum. God counts every sin. This is what people don't understand. Many people have asked here in the class. Well, you know, why should I keep kosher? I don't keep all the mitzvahs of the Torah. It's not like you know, I keep. Uh, maybe I don't keep Shabbos, or maybe I don't. I don't perform mitzvahs like this. And perform. I don't put on sitters. I don't wear tefillin. I don't this. I don't that. Maybe it's hypocritical if I keep one mitzvah not the other. So this is one of the important things for us to remember as Jews that. It's not all or nothing. Everything that you can do, it's like it's like someone saying, "Like I don't follow all the laws, so why should I keep the speed limit? Why should I keep to the speed limit if I if I don't? You know, it, you know what? Everything that you can do is is appropriate." The Gemara digresses for a short comment regarding the last two words of the aforementioned verse, and then returns to its previous discussion. He says, "What does it mean? Asher im befido lohen shua." What does that mean? That shua means relief, relief for them. Normally, the Hebrew word for relief is yeshua. Since the unusual term of shua is used, the verse lends itself to an, to be expounded in the following manner: Bishar shemishavin lefonai. In reward of Israel's crying out, shava means a crying out in prayer before Hashem, the same word is Moshiach, which means I will deliver them from their distress. So when the Jewish people cry out to Hashem, Hashem delivers, Hashem saves them. Hashem protects us. And this is one of the things that we've been talking a lot about in our brand new prayer podcast, how the crying out to Hashem is so beloved that Hashem, because when we are, when we are crying out to Hashem, Hashem is Moshiach. It's the same root word. When we cry out to Hashem, Hashem uh, comes and delivers us from our distress. So the Gemara cites another source which demonstrates that God, God punishes Israel in small increments so that they may merit a portion of the world to come as Rava uh, has said above. Now, it's important to understand: if Hashem wipes us out, we have nothing left. If Hashem punishes us too harshly, we may not be able to recuperate from it. So Hashem gives us little bits, ketanagola, just like the beak of a of a uh, of a rooster pecks away little bits. That's the way Hashem punishes us. Behind the, the of Abba, and this is consistent with that which Rav Abba said. What is the meaning of that which is written? I would redeem them, but they have spoken lies about me. I said I would redeem them with their money in this world. So that they will merit a portion of the world to come. Yet they have spoken lies about me. Let's understand this. See, many people are short-sighted. Many people are short-sighted in that they think that everything is about this world. Everything is about this world, but that's not true. Everything's not about this world. Everything is about our portion of the world to come. Sometimes a person can say, what, I lost all my fortune, I had so much money. Hashem hates me, Hashem is punishing me. What did I do wrong? I give charity. But a person needs to understand that we are seeing things only in two dimension, which is this world, above ground, below ground. That's the two dimensions. But we have to see the pictures far greater because there's another dimension, which is the world to come, the big picture. And sometimes Hashem needs to punish the righteous in this world so that they get their portion of the world to come. Sometimes Hashem says, the wicked, I'll give them all their reward in this world so that they get nothing in the world to come. Where is it more important for a person to invest in? This world or the world to come? Well, the world to come, that we know. But it's going to mean that we're going to have to sacrifice a little bit in this world. What does that mean? You know, Someone who wants the pleasure of running the marathon is going to have to let go of some of the pleasure to get there. What's that pleasure? I want to sit back and eat my comfort food. I want to eat my potato chips sitting on the couch and watching my favorite show. Well, you're not going to be able to run the marathon like that. You know what it's going to take to run the marathon? Really hard, blood, sweat, and tears. You're going to run and your legs are going to hurt you and you're going to be out of breath and you're going to be on the bayou and it's going to be so hot and you're going to be dripping sweat and it's going to be unpleasant. But if you want to run that two hundred to twenty-six point six point two miles, for the full marathon, or thirteen point one miles in the half marathon, or the 5K five kilometer run, or the 10 kilometer run, or the they have this now this this hundred-mile run. They do this like extreme marathon. Unbelievable. You know how much hard work that takes. You know how much determination that takes. So anything worthwhile is painful. Anything worthwhile, do you ask anybody what is the most pleasurable thing in your life? They'll tell you, my children. My children, my children's the most pleasurable thing. But what gives you the most pain? Your children. The more pain, the more gain. So, and what gives you the most worry and what gives you the most concern and what keeps you up at night? Your children. But yet your children are the greatest pride and joy. The more you invest in something, the more, the more reward you get from it. And sometimes people think, oh, I want all the reward first. No, no, no. The reward you get first is maybe not such a good thing we see that the evildoers get rewarded in this world for any good that they may have done they get their full reward and then hashem says in the world to come you get nothing while the righteous in this world is the hard work it's the toil because all the reward is reserved for them in the world to come and this is another indication that we see here in this talmud on 4a in tractate of Odazar. the Gomorrah had stated that God sends tribulations to Israel so that they will be moved to prayer and thereby thereby be saved. It now cites another source that makes this point. And this is the same principle that Rav Papi said in the name of Rav. What is that which is written? as for me I have afflicted them I have strengthened their arms but they think evil of me that's a verse in Hosea chapter 7 verse 15 the Almighty said God said I will punish them with suffering in this world, so that their arms should be strengthened. They should receive their healthy portion in the world to come. But they think evil of me, meaning they're going to question. This is the question that everybody asks. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? You know who asked this question? Moshe, your world, where's justice? Where's justice in your world? God says, if you continue asking, what's going to happen? I'm going to have to destroy my world completely. What type of, uh, what type of, uh, you know, avoidance of a question is that? What do you mean? Moshe Rabbeinu asks, Hashem, I want to understand your world. Shem says, you continue asking further how justice works in my world, I'm gonna have to destroy the world. Sages tell us, because you can't understand the full picture by just a little glimpse. Like imagine you have a a painter who's painting on top of a mountain, a magnificent, magnificent picture. Magnificent picture, magnificent painting. Painting, painting, painting. Guy walks up. He's like, "I think there's a mistake here. I think there's a mistake here. What are you doing here? You're painting the, this and that. What, what are you doing?" She says, "No, no. If you stand back, all the way back, you zoom out, you'll be able to see that this line needs to be here, exactly here. Got to be careful. You don't walk back because you'll fall off the mountain, right? But you have, to, you have to realize you have to see the full picture in order to understand." What's going on over here? You can't look at a little sliver of the, little bit of the, of the canvas and say, oh, this, this, you have to look at the full picture. We come in to this world, you're born 1900, you die 2020, 120 beautiful years. You only see a little sliver of, of history and you're trying to understand everything from the beginning of creation to the end of creation doesn't work. Moshe, it's not going to work. If you want to see the whole picture, I'm going to have to destroy the world. Why? So that you see it from the beginning to the end. That's what it means. Sages tell us that Moshe asked to see God's face. God, show me your glory. I want to see your face. It says that Moshe was able to see the back of Hashem's head, but not the front. You can't see my face. Now we all know that God doesn't have a face. So what are you talking about? what is God what is what's going on here in the conversation between Moshe and God? you know you know you know that, that that's not how it works. Moshe God doesn't have a face, he doesn't have a back either. So what's going on here? Say so just tell us that what Moshe was trying to ask God is the face means the future. the back means the past. Moshe says, Hashem, I want to understand the future." I want to see how this plays out. God says, no, no, no. You'll never be able to see the future. You'll never be able to understand the future. But you know what you can't see? You can look back. And if you look back at history of your own life, history of the world, you see that it it was always, Hashem always took care of everything. There was never a time where God neglected to take care of you. Oh, you just forgot about me. No, you didn't realize it was part of a picture. It was part of something much greater. You know why you had to go through that experience so that 10 years later, you'll be able to help someone with that issue. You know why you lost that job so that you get a better job. You know why this happened to you so that that can happen to you. So that you'll be open to new opportunities, whatever it is. We sometimes look microscopically at a specific incident and we're like, where was God? Where was God? It's not a healthy perspective. We have to see an entire picture. But you know what the problem is? We can never see an entire picture. Anybody who tries to say that they understand the Holocaust doesn't understand anything because we haven't seen a full picture yet. It's First as it's too close for us to understand, to comprehend, to, to wrap our mind around it. You know what it means? Six million Jews being murdered—it's unfathomable. How many? One point two million children. One point five million children. So it's, it's unfathomable. And and they weren't criminals. They weren't terrorists. They were they were successful people in their countries, respectively. They were good people. They were tax-paying citizens. Murdered indiscriminately. How do we understand that? We look now, eighty years later. We're trying to figure it out. put make heads and tails. How do we figure this out? How do we figure it out? We can't figure it out because we don't understand the full picture. There is a teaching that says there's a, a school of thought in Judaism where which says that every year of the every year of our existence is a verse in the Torah. And if you go to the year of the Holocaust, it's a warning in the Torah in Deuteronomy, meaning year number 5,700 and 5,600 and maybe 5,700 and whatever that area uh, number verse, you'll see that God warns the Jewish people of terrible, terrible calamities that will befall the Jewish people if they forsake their relationship with Hashem. It's Deuteronomy. It's it's not this is not this is not a surprise to anyone. The Torah says it. The Torah says, not only that, the Torah says that the people are going to ask, where is God? One of the things that was happening in all of these concentration camps, it was something called the God syndrome. People were saying, if there's a God, where is he? And this is what the Torah says is going to happen. The Torah says they're going to ask, where am I? From the beginning of the Torah, if you count that year, you can match it exactly. Now, again, I don't know if that's Accurate. I'm not suggesting that it is. I'm not suggesting that it's a punishment for anyone. This is not for me or for us to really delve into that that arena of oh, we we understand how Hashem's world works. We don't understand. Hashem tells us we don't understand. But what we do know is that Hashem talks to us. Hashem communicates to us. Who knows if that was not the springboard that made it possible for us to have our homeland? It's only you know three years later. 1948 we were gifted with the land of israel back so who knows if that's not the greatest reward what do we know what do we understand i'm not i'm not here to predict anything all i do know is that hashem is in charge of the world and he does his job very very well he's pretty good at his job and we're only here to get a glimpse of one little speck of history We don't understand if we may be a reincarnation of some great prophet or prophetess or some character in the Navi, you know, in, in, in the books of our prophets or the book of our Torah, or later on in history, and we're here to correct a certain trait to here, to correct a certain action. It's very possible. Most likely we're here to, we're here to. Not delve into the other realms of the of of existence of whether or not there are aliens. There are not aliens. There are. What do we know? What do we know? All right? We're here. shamayim la Hashem. The heavens are for God. But God gave Earth to mankind. This is for us to study. This is for us to learn, to grow from, and to hopefully connect to God on the greatest level we can. So the Gemara cites an incident pursuant to Rava's principle that God punishes Israel for its sins in small increments rather than all at once. Mishtabach lehu Limino <speaking> liminei <Hebrew> ve Rav Safra gadolhu praised Rav Safra to the heretics saying that he was a great man. Shovku leh de shnin. They therefore exempted Rav Safra from taxes for 13 years. Yomachada Ashkuchuhu. One day they found Rav Safra, Amrullah. They said to him, It is written, You alone did I love for all the families of the earth. From all the families of the earth. So who did Hashem love? Hashem loves the Jewish people. Alkain Efkod Alechem Eis. Call Therefore, I will hold you to account for all of your iniquities. And the heretics asked, "Man Does one possess, does one possessed with hostility, turn it against his beloved?" of Of course not. velo Safra kept quiet and did not reply at all. Ramu So they tied a kerchief around his, his throat, around his neck. And they were causing him distress. Omar came and found them doing this to Rav Safra. luhu he said to them, Amay mitzarisu why are you causing him distress? Why you why are you causing him pain? they said to him, Amris Odom did you not tell us? that he was a great man. and Yet, even though you claim he's such a great man, he could not tell us the interpretation of this verse. Based on your recommendation, we ex- exempted him from taxes because you said he was so great. For all of these years, we exempted him from taxes. Now we see that he's a total fraud. Amr lehu, said to him, amar I said that he was a great scholar only with respect to Tanaic literature. Did I say that he was a great person with respect to Scripture? Thus, my recommendation stands, and you were correct in exempting him from the tax. They said to Rabbi asun What is different about you that you know Scripture, whereas Rabbi Safra does not know Scripture? Amarlu he said to them, Anan de I, we who frequently visit with you, raminan anafshin Umainan. We take it upon ourselves to delve into the study of Scripture so that we will be able to answer your questions, meaning these are heretics. The heretics would ask questions that find the verse and like, oh, what does that mean? What does that mean? He says, so we, because we meet with you regularly, we study these verses in Scripture so that we can answer you appropriately. In l'me'ayni. But they, rabbis like Rav Safra, who do not delve into Scriptures because they do not speak with you oftenly and frequently. So the heretic said, Then you tell us the interpretation of the verse. You tell us what it means. He told them, I will illustrate the matter to you with a parable. To what this matter is analogous like a person who has been collecting debts from two people, from one of his one of these people, he's his friend, and one of these people is his enemy. When you love someone, you collect the debt from them little by little. It's okay, give me a hundred, give me another hundred, it's fine until you pay it up. He says, but whereas when you hate someone, you collect the entire debt in one shot. One in one in one time. So what does that mean? It's referring, explaining to them that verse that they asked Rabbi Vo about, where they said, the Jewish people who Hashem loves, Hashem takes from them, collects his debt little by little. But others who Hashem perhaps does not have that kind of love for, why because they didn't follow his torah they didn't follow his ordinances his teachings his laws so hashem punishes them in one fell swoop okay more regarding divine judgment i'm rabbo the son of rav kahana says my dexiv hola davar sadikim to you to do such a thing to bring death upon the righteous along with the wicked. Omar Avram the patriarch, our patriarch, Abraham, said to Hashem, creator of heaven and earth, the Holy One, blessed is he, Ribbon the master of the universe, Khulin hu Measus It would be a desecration to you, Lohamis Sadik in Russia, to bring death upon the righteous along with the wicked. And this is referring to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Where God says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy the entire city. And, God, and Abraham negotiates back saying, what do you mean? If there are 10, if there are 50 righteous, it starts with 50. You're going to kill the righteous with the, with the evil, with the wicked people. God says, you know what, you're right. If there are 50, I'll save them. And then if it was 40, 45, 40, 30, 20, Ten, and even ten there weren't. Ten righteous there weren't. So the Gemara asks, but does God really not punish the good together with the wicked? It's written that I will cut off the righteous and the wicked from among you. So here we see that punishment is meted out to evil together with the righteous alike. The Gemara answers, the latter verse, is referring to someone who is righteous, but not completely righteous. They're righteous-ish, but they're not completely righteous. Gemara objects, but are you saying that a person who is completely righteous, they're not punished together with the wicked? Doesn't it say, and be uh, and begin with my sanctuary, meaning begin with my righteous. Vitani l'Rav and Rav Yosef taught al Don't read it as my sanctuary, but rather my sanctified ones. So God is going to start punishment with His sanctified ones, meaning those that God loves. So the Gemara says. What does it mean, the sanctified ones? Those who observe the entire Torah from Aleph to Taf, from beginning to end. Yet even they are punished together with the wicked. So it's a little bit of a problem here. So the Gemara answers, Hasam, Nami, there too Kevan, Limchos, V'lamichu Since it was within their realm, within their ability to protest the behavior of sinners and they did not protest, this renders them righteous who aren't completely righteous. Why? If you see someone sinning and you don't say a word to them, you don't admonish them or uh, give them a little critique, a criticism, lovingly, you don't correct them, then you're not considered to be righteous completely. There we go, bystander versus upstander. We see this with Noach. Noach was a tzaddik in his generation. Our sages say, Yesh do'shem Yesh do'shem o'shel l'shwach. There's some who interpret this meritoriously of Noach and some not so good for Noach. Why? Noach had a generation of sinners and he just kept his mouth shut. He built his ark and he did his thing and he didn't correct anyone. Abraham, on the other hand, went out to his people and corrected their ways. He said, "Listen, this is idolatry. This is wrong. This is immoral. This is unfaithful. This is incorrect," and brought multitudes of people together with him. Yes, right. So, so one hundred percent. The Talmud tells us. We learned this, I believe, in eighty-two B, eighty-two B, A or B in Tractate Yevamot, which states that a person has an obligation in the Torah to give criticism, but then the the Talmud qualifies that and says, well, just like there's a mitzvah to reprimand someone who will listen to you, there's a mitzvah not to reprimand someone who will not listen to you. And from there we learn that if you don't have a suitable relationship where someone will accept your criticism, or if you don't have the proper method or the proper ability in speech to persuade someone to make change in their life then indeed it's going to be problematic you can't you can't if you can't properly criticize someone you're obligated not to correct but 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 a person can't say it's not my business it's not my problem no. uh, for example if you know that someone is uh violating a commandment in the torah you have an obligation to bring it to their attention now what's the proper way to do that is it to bang down their door and say hey you're violating a, a, sin, a you're violating the torah no you have to find the right way you have to way find a way to teach them and to love them and to nurture the relationship to a point where they're willing to hear and accept Okay, the Gemara continues its discussion regarding divine retribution. Rav Papa Rami, Rav Papa contrasts the following verses, and God is angered every day, and it says, says in another place, who can stand in front of God's anger? If no one can withstand God's anger, then he becomes angry, and he becomes angry every day. How is it that mankind survives from day to day? So the Gemara answers, Lokash, it's not difficult. And we can reconcile this contrast of these two verses. Kan b'yechid, b'kan b'tzibor. Here in the second verse, we are dealing with when God is angry with an individual. No single individual can withstand God's anger if it is directed specifically at him. We see this with Korach. It took him and it took his, his crowd. We see this also with Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron, the high priest that were taken, boom. No, no one can withstand God's anger. But Sibur here, in the first verse, we are dealing with a community. Even though God is angered every day, they can withstand his wrath because we, we already learned this multiple times. The number one thing that God wants is unity. And if we come together as a congregation, we spoke about this in our brand spanking new prayer podcast. That why do we come together as a quorum in shul, as a minion and daven together and pray together? Because that brings togetherness. It brings unity. God wants unity. That unity is what makes our prayers successful. Okay, so we're going to stop here for today. My dear friends, have a magnificent Shabbos. Thank you so much for being part of our Thinking Talmudist podcast. And to those of you online, thank you. Have a great Shabbos. We look forward to learning more together, God willing, every single day. Thank you. You've been listening to Rabbi Arya wolby on a podcast produced by Torch, the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston. We need you. We need partners. Please help sponsor an episode so we can continue to produce more quality Jewish content for our listeners around the globe. Please visit torchweb.org to donate and partner with us on this incredible endeavor.